Welcome to Series 2, Episode 3 of Tree Lady Talks, and this week we are speaking to none other than... Amelia Williams. We're going to try a new feature this week. We're going to play a game, and what Sharon is going to do is at some point she is going to mention the name of the person she is interviewing, incorporated into a word in the interview, and at the end, I shall be asking questions. If you get it right, you get the triangle sound. If you get it wrong... And then we're doing something else, aren't we? So that if you don't know it, listeners, Noel is not an aboriculturalist. So the questions he asks are right from the heart. They cut through everything else. And so we've started... Noel's question of the week. So every week, Noel is going to ask a question that you were too afraid to ask. Or that you were too ignorant to think of. Ha <laughs> ha! No, it's going to be a brilliant feature, folks. And actually, on that point, going forward, we'd love to hear any questions you may have. When I'm out on a walk With my tree lady talk And I can tell you I'm in Amelia Williams is a chartered aboriculturalist, a chartered environmentalist. She's an aboricultural consultant and she's been a tree officer. And really interestingly, she's also worked on Ministry of Defence land as well. Now, if she's worked on Ministry of Defence land, that would have been very good if she'd have actually added her specialist hobby into it because she would be very small and no one would ever see her and she'd walk around in camouflage and it would be brilliant because she is an expert in... Bonsai! So we had a great conversation about ash dieback as well and how you let the community know you need to fell lots of trees. But how fascinating to hear the relationship between managing bonsai and looking after normal, huge trees. OK, that sounds really interesting as usual. Let's pass it over to Amelia and we will see you at half time where something else is going to happen. Hello, this is Tree Lady Talks. And I'm Sharon Durdent-Hollenby. All music and production is by Noel Durdent-Hollenby. And all views expressed by me or the interviewees are entirely personal. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. It's lovely to be here and great to see you, Sharon. Thank you. And you. Tell us a little bit about your career. How did you first get involved with Aboriculture? So um, I was a bit of a late starter in arboriculture, really. I've always loved climbing trees from a young age. And as a child, I was up and climbing trees and spent most of my time actually in trees. But it wasn't until sort of probably 2000, after I'd done a geography degree at Royal Holloway University, that I'd actually got into arboriculture. And, And partly... The only experience I'd had of the even the arbor or forestry industry was, I think, when I was 16. And um, you had to do like a careers fair and, and it sort of mapped your, your sort of key skills or your desires and interests in what career you wanted. And I came out as a forester. Oh, did you really? That's brilliant. 20 years ago, they were thinking about that. Good. It, it, was, it was great. But at the same time, um, partly... It was sort of not seen as a career, I suppose, and everybody was pressured to go on to university and college. So went through the normal route with A-levels and a degree. And, and actually having a geography degree was, was a really good base to help connect then our boriculture. 
and understanding how all the different ecology and environment and soils and, and geology and everything connected. And, and particularly, I studied a combination of, of sort of environmental and social geography. So I like the urban element as well with people. And I think that's where it sort of, I suppose, led me post-degree. I went off traveling around the world and I was absolutely blessed with being able to go to some amazing countries and every country I went to, I went to find trees, just naturally. How lovely. Uh, so when we were in Mongolia, I happened to sort of be finding the only tree in Mongolia and having a selfie with it. <laughs> and the same in Australia. And my friend who I travel with, Rachel, we, we always did try and find trees to take pictures in front of. And I think there was just a natural drawing towards being around trees, particularly some of the massive trees in Australia and New Zealand, just incredible. And when I came back from, from traveling, it was then that I sort of was trying to sort of find a career path. And I ended up working as actually as a temp in a planning authority. And um, I think they got fed up with me sort of um, in the office that they said, why didn't you go out with the tree officer and spend some time out on site? Um, so that's how I met um, Dermot and ended up actually joining him in the sort of tree department. You've had a lot of roles, haven't you? You've been a lecturer and had your own company. So, yeah, it was it's sort of from joining sort of the local authority and getting trained. So I went to Sparshot College and did my tree surgery training because I felt it was important to understand the practical side of tree work. And then I went on to go to Meriswood with Jack Kenyon absolute legend um, in the arboricultural world and, and Mariswood and Sparshot are brilliant training facilities for arboriculture and, and it was just from there it just grew your career just doors opened and ended up sort of teaching at uh, Moulton College in Northamptonshire alongside Andy Summerlee. He is a total ledge I love him he changed my life I always say that every time I talk about him and it was just, it was absolutely such, um, I suppose, an inspiring stage to be at the point of young people's development when you're teaching. And, and one of my students referred to me as the oracle. And I felt really bad because I thought, well, I will be the oracle of all knowledge because I'm currently in the one teaching you. But at some point you will get there as well. And, and it was such a lovely sort of feeling to be part of helping others move into their careers. And, and I loved my time there. And it was Sad to not sort of stay longer, but I felt that I needed to keep moving and learn more about the different elements of the industry. I haven't worked on the tools, but I've been a tree officer and um, different sorts of consultancy, and you just never, ever stop learning. And that, that's what's been amazing. So I ended up joining um, CBA Trees with Colin Bashford, and, and he was absolutely instrumental in, in sort of teaching me the ropes of everything to do with consultancy along with Julian Forbes Laird and Bernie Harveson and, and they were brilliant really inspirational characters and, and so knowledgeable and to be able to train and learn under their guidance was was really what helped me become the consultant I became today and and it also gave me the confidence to then after working for them for four years and being involved in some really high profile projects to then actually have the confidence to start my own business. And, and that was where, for me, it was a sort of turning point, really, thinking I've now sort of partly made it, but I hadn't really made it because I didn't think you ever make it to a certain point because you're just still always learning. Um, but it, it was, yes, lovely to, to have that journey and that experience. And, and along the way, working towards chartership. So back in, I think, 2007, I became a chartered environmentalist at the AA. And then 
sort of more recently chartered um, arboriculturalist with the Institute of Chartered Foresters. And so on your journey, it was also looking at how you could sort of, I suppose, sort of validate where you were in your career, looking at what recognition or, or what sort of um, academic achievements you could actually then sort of work towards throughout your different times sort of so I started off with doing the practical as I say and then worked through the technician certificate the professional diploma and then went through the chartered stages and and that for me worked well with my academic background but there are so many different entry routes now into arboriculture and I love the fact that you've now got the professional um, sort of tree inspection certificate with Lantra which again is, is an opportunity like for sort of the tree surgery sort of route to go through and then get that sort of professional recognition to then inspect trees. So it was, yes, yeah, sort of, I suppose doors seem to open and opportunities come up. And if you're open to them and you, you sort of take advantage of them, you can see your career can flourish. And, and I was very fortunate while I worked for Colin Bashford Associates that I got offered the opportunity to go and work on the military estate. What's it like working on a military estate? What legislation applies in terms of trees? Or are they exempt from felling licence requirements, etc.? So they used to have crown exemption up until 2012. And then the crown exemption w- was removed. So there was very few tree preservation order elements or, or sort of there was still the felling licence requirement, but there were certain sort of exemptions that you could follow. But they've all gone now. And so they are just generally... Um, sort of having to follow the normal sort of sort of statutory sort of TPO planning license, felling license sort of guidance really. But it, it was, I suppose, a really exciting opportunity. It was a 35 year PFI worth absolutely billions and, and phenomenal in terms of the investment that was going into the military estate. And it was the first time, I think in the whole of the UK that a military set of garrisons had got their trees to be surveyed electronically using um, Arbitrack at the time and actually having their tree stock put into a management programme, it it was just brilliant to be part of that and actually get them to a place where they understood firstly what they had, what condition it was in, and it taught me so much about the management of risk, looking at understanding things like near misses and the, the really valuable evidence if you have a branch failure actually monitoring that tree post-branch failure, looking for your telltale signs of, we got very good at understanding timeframes between one branch failure and the next and trying to predict when trees would fail because we were seeing quite a lot of failures because of the neglected nature of some of the sites that we got very used to then understanding our tree stock and and, because we spent so much time with it that you really get that understanding and knowledge of, of how to manage it, what it needs, what it's doing. And particularly if you can monitor and you're not rushing in there initially to think, oh, gosh, it's dropped a limb, we must fell it. It's like taking a step back and going, no, we've actually got time. The risks are quite low around it. We've got time to manage and monitor it. Well, that's actually a really privileged situation because in most consultancy, you're jumping from site to site. As a tree officer, you normally have such an absolutely huge area and so many demands. But to have that almost uh, scientific study and luxury of there being a low risk so you could really analyse that, what did you learn? Do you think that people are, are mostly too risk averse and are too willing to remove a tree? 
or is it entirely dependent on species and, and what the, the structural fault is? I think it was partly overcoming some of the myths that um, around sort of, I was always taught from a sort of in college days that sort of beech trees were not good with crown reductions, but having then trialed some crown reductions on some beech trees, because we were really looking to try and save them, it actually proved that it does work subject to the condition that they're in, as long as you've got the space around them. And, and understanding that sort of not all funguses are as aggressive as, as some of the texts tell you, things like Crechomeria, just because it's got Crechomeria doesn't always need to mean that you have to choose fell as your option. You've got a huge toolkit. And, and I think sometimes as arborists, we forget that. And, and you have got options on your side. And, and I know there is always that worry. There were always in a storm condition trees that you would go home and you think, gosh, I hope that's still upright tomorrow. Yes. It's terrible when it's windy at night and you go to bed and you think, oh, no. It's, we really do dread the wind, don't we? But um, going back to your career progression, I'm sure you feel the same as me, but one of the wonderful things about working in a borough culture, because it's quite small, is you do make so many friends. I mean, really, there's so many lovely people and uh, that's really, it feels like a family to me over the years. I would agree. It, 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 you know everybody nearly, and if you don't know them, you'll very quickly get to know them because the industry is so friendly and I've never found any barriers to people wanting to share because I think tree people in just of natural sort of um, sort of propensity like to talk about trees and therefore we all share so much information and, and I think that's been one of the lovely sides of it that it is it feels like a very open source industry and and that's that's been one of the great things particularly there was a lot of camaraderie around sort of the whole climbing scene and, and being part of the practical element but at the same time there was the tree officer groups that you joined in with when I was a tree officer I absolutely loved the local tree officer groups and you think oh yeah they've got that problem as well but um, no we do all learn from each other and during the pandemic, there's been such a, a huge range of online learning and webinars and sort of discussions and things. It's been absolutely incredible. But the other thing you, you mentioned your time at the Institute of Child of Forest is you've been absolutely brilliant working with them because you've become an assessor. Isn't that a privilege, an assessor for the chartership process? Have you enjoyed it? I, I have. It's it's been thoroughly sort of engaging and and understanding. Having sort of more recently been through it myself from the other side, and and understanding that what you try and put into your submissions and the work that goes into it, and then then being the one that sits there and, and looks through the assessments is is just delightful. When you see some really amazing candidates coming forward who inspire you even with the things that they've been doing. Because like going back to the start, everybody's come into the industry in different routes, have had different journeys. I've not met anybody who's had the exact same mirror route into the sort of arboricultural industry as I've had. And that's what's been really great, that you're sharing that knowledge, you're seeing other peers across the table from you as an assessor, who you perhaps have never so had any contact with before and yet you hear about their amazing career journeys and when they talk about their critical analysis in depth of what they've been studying or looking at it, it's absolutely fascinating no, you just follow me follow me 
Now look, no, it's up here. It's up here. Can you see it in the corner? You join us. We're, we're trying to find Amelia's bonsai house. I think we have actually found it. Hold on a second. Okay, I think we're here. How exciting. Now look, there's a door. We'll just get the door. Hold on a second. Right, he's asked me to take my shoes off. I'll take my shoes. Take your shoes off. It's so peaceful here. Look at all that rape gravel. Don't walk on the rape gravel, Compo. Now, Amelia should be fairly easy to spot because in these tiny trees, she'd be like a giant. This is like Lilliput. <laughs> it's so calming here. Listen to the sound of that gurgling water. Amelia, I see her. I see her. Can you see her? Hi, Amelia. Amelia, Amelia, where are we? Ask her about the tiny trees. Because I wanted to study trees and really understand trees, I would bring home nursery-sized stock trees to my parents at the time. And I think my parents' garden was so full of sort of standard trees um, and it wasn't quite big enough for them all, so they were all in pots. And, and my mum actually was my, my sort of inspiration for getting into it. She went to a local bonsai club in about 2006. And, and sort of said, oh, Amelia, you should come along to this. This is really good. This is all about trees, but in miniature. And, and that was how it all started. So I went along to a local bonsai club in Salisbury and literally started the journey of understanding that bonsai is, is not a weird and wacky species of its own right. It is a standard normal tree just kept in a pot and the different techniques that you use to keep it in a pot and keep it to a certain size are just phenomenal when you actually realize the versatility of trees it is mind-blowing and i think that's just made me in awe of trees in terms of what you can do with them and what they do for you because bonsai as a hobby it has taken over my life um i can say that i can say i'm i'm looking at you now and there's bonsai trees behind you there's one on your desk and i've seen photographs of uh, many many trees but Tell us about the basics, Amelia. For somebody who doesn't know anything about bonsai, how do you start creating a bonsai tree? So, so the very basics are you can you can start with a packet of seeds and you can just literally grow some trees. Um, literally, I, the other day I ordered some seeds off Nikki's Seeds, who are a really good supplier of, of nursery sort of grade um, sort of tree species seeds, and I can't wait to plant them up. And I will start off, I've got some trident maples, I've got some um, giant redwoods, um, a few little hornbeams, I was going to do some paper bark maples as well. And, and literally, I'm quite happy with what's called the marme size, which is about sort of the size that fits into your palm. Uh, we've got a bonsai tree. I'll show you at the end, you can, sh you can be horrified. And, and so depending on, on what you want out of the tree, whether you want to keep it indoors or outdoors, will depend on the species you choose. So mainly now I specialize on tropicals. So most of my trees are from places like Taiwan and, and sort of more sort of warmer tropical climates because I keep them inside in the conservatory. And, and the key thing behind starting off a bonsai is initially getting the root development to the right sort of position in relation to you want a really fibrous root pad that is totally efficient it doesn't need structural roots because you tend to wire them into the pots for stability but what you want is that fibric root pad that just literally can absorb water and nutrients as quickly as possible 
Because they, they must have to work really, really hard to support the crown because they're in a very shallow, um, a shallow little pot, very small. We've got one here in the office and um, they're absolutely reliant upon you, aren't they? They, they are. So that, that's why it does become a little bit of a, a sort of like a, particularly in the summer with, with all the trees. We, up until last year, we, we had about 500 each. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and, and we used to come home at lunchtime and twice a day, three times a day in the summer and water and try and get enough food into them as well. And, and putting them into the smaller bonsai, sort of shallower pots for show is, is what we tended to then do. But when they're not in show, you would put them in a slightly deeper pot just to make your maintenance slightly easier. Otherwise it does become a bit like, oh my gosh, it's dried out again. And particularly with some of the soils that we've moved on to, We've moved on to soils like Akadama and Kiryu, which are a Japanese um, sort of clay. And it dries out incredibly quickly in this country. We don't have the humidity levels to try and keep the trees like, moist. And, and by moving over to those specialized soils, there you get a finer root development and a more advanced root pad, which means the root system is much more efficient. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amelia. Thank you. Compo, compo, come off the gravel. Whoa, that was good, wasn't it? Do you know, I just feel so much calmer. Wow, fantastic. Now, do you fancy a green tea? I do. And now it's time for... Lowe's Question of the Week. Amelia, hi. I'm wicked. I'm here. I actually wanted to know... In the case of bonsai trees, whether you can scale down the disease, let's say to ash trees and, and therefore ash dieback, can you, if you had a bonsai ash tree, could you therefore analyse that disease in a more, in an easier way, if you like? So the answer would be yes. At the moment, quite a few people who have ash as bonsai are quite worried that they will get ash dieback. And I've collected some little saplings of ash out in the field that have already got ash dieback. And, and you're looking at then the speed at which it then causes the lesions and, and causes the dieback. But the only problem you have is with the really young material that I've got, it, it just basically proves and, and sort of, I suppose, supports the theory that younger trees are less resilient to ash dieback than the maturer ones. And, and that, that's the evidence so far that I've worked with having infected ash bonsai, I suppose, because you're not allowed now currently to sell ash bonsai or to buy ash anyway. So the only way to get hold of stock is to actually go and sort of do some self-collection. And, and it seeds so freely anyway, you can easily source it. Um, and a method would be to get some of the older, where you've actually had a, sort of some of the middle-aged trees cut down, you could actually then take some of the rootstock and bonsai those, and then you get to study it in more detail. I thought that went quite well, didn't it? I loved it. I was so pleased when she said yes. My God, if she said no, I would have been absolutely floored. Well, it would have been a waste of a perfectly good jingle. And then it would a waste of a perfectly good jingle, and then it would no longer have been Noel's question of the week because it wouldn't exist anymore. No, we'd have to lock you away. Ta-da! I had to deal with, um, this is about 10 years ago now, a situation where a trench had been dug through some tree roots. And we backfilled the trench with um, a substance called kanuma, which is a very soft sort of, um, again, a clay. 
um, but it's a granule that's really gentle and it's, it's basically we use it for azaleas as specific soil but it's amazing how trees will very quickly within sort of three to four days develop fibrous roots into it. Because it's so loose and friable and and soft so there's it can easily penetrate. And, and so we were literally finding that from the cut root ends, we've managed to keep them moist. It would be pushing out a new fibrous root system into the cut trench, which was hopefully going to be enough to keep the trees supported until it could then develop more advanced roots. So the initial fibrous ones were what you want initially just to keep the tree going. And then the bigger roots will develop later. Um, and we did a little bit of a test with adding things like um, additional sphagnum moss within the mix. And I have no idea what the properties are within sphagnum moss, but tree roots love it. I, I have, oh. That is one of the things. If you have a tree root issue and, and you need to try and help rejuvenate the roots, chop sphagnum moss. We tend to put a small amount in with the bonsai soil anyway. And it's some sort of properties that the moss has that help promote root activity. How interesting. Have you tried things like biochar or any other um, soil emollients? Actually, all the trees we've planted up in our own personal orchard, we sort of use with biochar. And it's amazing in terms of the, the summer moisture levels, it helps retain. We didn't have one failure at all in the orchard and they've all managed to get through the entire really harsh summer of hot weather and dry conditions. And we also introduced it on our tree planting, I think in 2019, for all the local authority new planting and we didn't lose a single tree. So it is absolutely invaluable if you want to try and reduce your tree loss costs, then add biochar into your every tree planting pit you're ever doing. It, it's worth it. It's really easy to handle as well, isn't it? It's nothing special difficult about it i mean i use it as well and i also use it in impoverished urban soils on construction sites where i'm dealing with the root system of a mature tree that might have been under tarmac and has um, working with bonsai influenced how you might prune a traditional tree so it has because with, with bonsai you're constantly pruning depending on the species you've got I, most wheat i've got scissors in my hand and i'm pruning and with the combination of the techniques you learn in bonsai, as well as with, with Nawaki, which we actually had quite a lot of training with Jake Hobson, who actually wrote some lovely books about Nawaki. And he's at Chelsea most years, but we haven't had Chelsea for a year now. Um, I know. Probably not this year as well. I know. But yeah, so in terms of the pruning element, we do things like the full defoliation. You might do a partial defoliation. You might do some thinning. And the way that trees respond to that is, is by pushing back budding more, you get more rejuvenated growth, um, and hence why the confidence to then do crown reduction works and to specify that. And having done a lot of crown reduction works across particularly oaks, some beaches, and even the ash with ash dieback, the results have been amazing. The crown regeneration has been fantastic. The vigor back in the trees, that some of them had just got really end weighted and, and quite tired. But once we'd done the crown reduction, it was incredible that the sort of way that they're now growing looks as though they're a rejuvenated younger tree. And, and it's keeping them into those regimes. Once you start those regimes, it's doing it every sort of three to five years. So from a tree management perspective, you have to sometimes outweigh the cost with it. But it means your trees are healthier and live longer 
then that's got to be a benefit for the urban and non-urban environments. People tend to, the, the public will think, oh, the trees have got out of hand, it needs a good prune. And then we always say as boroculturalists, well, trees don't benefit from pruning unless there's a structural fault. Trees are just pruned to fit the space. But what you're saying is if a tree is, you know, has a low crown density and a lot of the foliage is at the end of the branches, actually reducing an oak, and I've seen that with an oak many times, seems to push out the dormant buds and create a higher vitality, although we are actually stressing the tree. I, I find that quite... I wonder what you think about how to explain that. I think it's partly from having looked at nursery practices and, and basically with bonsai as well, is that actually we've, we've had that view that perhaps pruning is bad for trees and, and not necessary. But you, if you think of the life of a nursery stock tree, it is pruned intensively to make it the shape and form that we then as customers want to buy. And so if you go and look at a natural young red oak in, in what in the wild that grows it's quite an untidy form but if you go to one of the nurseries like Hillier's and you look at the red oaks there they are beautiful they are pruned to an absolute picture perfect image and if you then don't keep that pruning going it will revert back to its slightly slightly more rugged form and yes and and so partly also because most of our trees are unnaturally produced i.e that they're grafted or they are produced off other rootstocks and and i think there is actually that misconception that actually all trees would benefit from pruning to some extent just either from a formative pruning i think we miss out on that formative pruning once we've planted them people tend to just then leave them but actually going in and trying to help reduce some of the defects. I'm, I'm so totally love though natural bracing. And I think Duncan Slater's work around all of that has, has opened everybody's eyes. And I think so much of it. Yeah. And today I was out looking at a, a massive line or avenue of a hundred plus year old beech trees. And the amount that still had natural bracing in with crossing branches was superb. And I think sometimes trying to encourage arborists who are doing tree work to understand the importance of the natural ways that trees rectify defects, allowing them time to rectify defects and knowing when to intervene and when not to. And that's, I think, the key thing. It's knowing when to intervene. A good example would have been we managed to save a beautiful collection of mature cedar trees in a cemetery. We had a really bad storm, I think it was about 2014 or maybe 2012, and we had huge amounts of snow, lots of wind, and and we lost a lot of branches off the cedars. And I thought, we can't do this again. This is something we can't cope with because we will lose these majestic historic trees. So bless them, a really good company that we were working with at the time, sort of Beechwood Tree Care, came in and they crowned thinned the cedars. So you could imagine <laughs> the specification and asking them to go up and, and thin out all the dead material and, and do a thin across every branch. So the snow and then everything would fall through. You did a crown thin rather than a crown reduction. Yes. To shorten the lever arm. Obviously a crown reduction would completely destroy the shape of the tree, which... And a cedar is is a point of a cedar, isn't it? The fact that it is a very layered tree. So you did a crown thin. That must be quite challenging to do, technically. 
it certainly put their climbing skills to the test with walking and everything it was incredible to watch I got quite a lot of filming and footage out of them because they were really experienced guys and, and they did a phenomenal job and we had so little failure since then in relation to those trees because they had years of old deadwood and old needles that were stopping that airflow. So none of the back budding was happening and the trees had just clogged themselves up and, and they've got so heavy with their own branch weight by taking out all of that old material and it was a technique I learned from, from actually the Japanese black pine work that we were doing on the workshops with Nwaki and with Jake. And, and basically with the black pines, to get that back budding and to refresh the buds that you want, you need to get that aeration and that space around it. That makes such sense. Uh, I just wonder why we're not doing that routinely, apart from money. I, I've never specified that for a cedar and I'm going to start the next cedar I see. Um that's really, really interesting because we worry so much when it's snowy with cedars because they just obviously lose branches. But what a brilliant idea. And the same with pines. There's a beautiful big Corsican pine in one of the cemeteries where I am looking after the trees at the moment. And last year we gave it a whole bowser full of liquid seaweed with mixed in with water. The year before it got a really bad um, pine weevil infestation and its needles were going brown. It looked really sickly. Now, this is a tree that's a phenomenal size. It's over 100 dBH, absolutely gorgeous tree. And I just thought, how are we going to sort of help it? And all it needed, because the, the pine weevil was, was taking a nutrient from the needles, all it needed was that replacement feed to try and actually help it then naturally recover itself. And, and I went and looked at it last year, and it's amazing. It's fully back to being bright green again and and really doing well and just one or two little interventions like that can help save trees that you really look at and you think gosh what's going wrong understanding the problem and then finding a a fairly cheap cost-effective solution yeah yeah seaweed is a wonderful thing it is absolutely superb And um, you've also, we've spoken before about ash dieback disease and the work you've been doing. So in your work as a tree officer, I understand you've carried out a lot of tree surveys looking at ash dieback disease. What have you learned from that? I think the main thing is, is that sort of, again, it's understanding the mode of transmission. It's understanding the speed at which ash are being affected and what age ranges to really focus on. And we found that sort of trees 30 centimetres, 40 centimetres and below. In diameter, in stem diameter, yes. yes are very quickly um, sort of succumbing to ash dieback, particularly the natural regeneration as well in, in woodland floors because there's less airflow. It's all the spores are captured under the canopy. So there's a repeat infection cycle. And and the other thing we found was we tried to do some coppicing work. And again, we had the same problem that the regen from the coppicing was reinfected very heavily. And with pollards as well, particularly at low level, if they were in dense environments, some of the open pollards were less affected and the regeneration has actually held now for two years. But I'm not as hopeful if if they already were quite heavily infected before we pollarded them, that some of them just haven't had that natural energy reserve in the stems to, to overcome the actual infection. And I think one of the things is, is not to panic, it's to actually sit down and have that strategic approach to thinking, 
firstly, what have we got? So we actually went out and we looked at finding out where all our ash trees were. The initial thing was just to do an initial count and record numbers. Unfortunately, we were using EasyTree as a tree management software tool. And it was very easy to then identify where all the ash that we'd already surveyed were and pick up all the other ash. And we even broke it down to sending out sort of some of the countryside officers came out and helped. And they went and actually recorded the number of ash, every stem in all the woodlands. And I think in woodland terms, I think there were about 7,000 ash trees in some of the woodland areas. And I think we had a population of about four and a half thousand individual ash across the borough. And once we knew that, and we had also classified them as to whether what phase of ash dieback they were facing, so in terms of what percentage of dieback they were showing, we could then identify which ones we needed to focus our attention on and doing that initial risk assessment as to where they were, were they at risk at all, could we leave them, was there a footpath, was there a house, and was there any other intervention, like could we trial some crown reduction? So in the town centres, we had some really big majestic ash and we thought that it just is too premature to fell them. It was awful to have risk versus these majestic historic trees. So we did the trial like crown reductions and the initial regrowth and, and response has been really promising that they're the densest crowns I've seen on ash in many years. Um, ash generally are looking fairly thin they are, particularly in the east of the UK. I mean, if ever I go west, I think, oh, so that's what an ash tree is supposed to look like. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so when did you carry out these crown reductions? So we started doing the crown reductions in 2016 um, and then looked at the regrowth sort of over the next three years. And then last year, even though I'd left the local authority at that point, I was still engaged with them as a consultant then. And so we're still going back and looking at them. And we basically sort of built a phased program. We're working with the Forestry Commission for the woodland ash because some of the woodlands are full public access. They've got footpaths all the way through them. And so with some areas, the decision has to be that ash in, in where there's high risk areas will have to come down and an opportunity for restocking. But it's, it's that monitoring programme that we're doing with all the individual ash where we can to try and actually maintain an ash population. Yes, that is important, isn't it? And in terms of restocking, what species have you been choosing? Partly one of the, I suppose, disappointing sides is that there's still this quite keenness um, with, with the felling licences that they push you down the road of, of currently native um, which is a bit disappointing with the view of, of sort of the fact that we really need to be diversifying our, our tree populations and tree stocks to, to more ornamental or, or non-native species that have a chance in the future climate. And, and I think some of the species that we've been looking at particularly promising things like hornbeam, and I know it's, it's not good for English native broadleaf woodlands, but things like even the coastal redwood um, sort of Street tree wise, ginkgos, absolutely phenomenal, very resistant to most pest diseases and, and trying to diversify, but also relying on things like your good old natives, like your sort of Acer campestri or field maple, 
We've done a lot with um, the Wild Service Tree and trying to get a population of those established because that's an absolute brilliant biodiversity tree. Your flowers and your fruits and, and it's a beautiful tree as well. And it suckers, doesn't it? It spreads by suckering. You often get pockets of it in an ancient semi-natural woodland. And when I was speaking to Tony Kirkham, he was saying that he's replacing ash with disease-resistant elms. We would trialled on the MOD estate some disease-resistant elms back in, I think, 2000 and I think it was about 2010 or even before then. And I've been back and I've seen them a few times and they look magnificent. It's the almost new horizon. And they're a gorgeous looking tree. And we've planted quite a lot already on, on the local authority estate anyway. And and yes, absolutely, as a stat, like a statuesque statement tree yeah, in the future. Definitely. And even things like Zelkovas and your hot hornbeams, some of those sorts of species, things that get big because ash is such a presence. They were just always there, a bit like probably and and now that they're going and you, you really miss them. Of course you do, that's right. And and how did you communicate with the general public what was happening? Were you doing some really quite large scale felling of ash or or prominent ash trees, that are landmark trees in their area? What did you do? So we worked with local councillors and, and sort of met with local councillors on site. We we showed them the issues and we talked through what the solutions could be. And, and most of the, the sort of support we had then from the councillors talking to their communities, putting information that we provided into their newsletters, doing letter drops. And, and one of the good schemes that at the moment um, is, is that local authority parish councillors and, and local councillors can bid for um, the community funding, the SIL funding. And so a lot of them have tried to put in for tree planting funding which is fantastic because it will hopefully also help support and bolster the efforts because with the felling works, local authorities are going to be putting trees back. But if the communities can join in as well and tap into other and alternative sources of funding, it all helps add to the, the whole package of replacement planting. And we then did, um, for most of the big projects we've done, we did letter drops. We went and met with, with sort of the public on site and did public meetings and, and we've tried to sort of raise awareness as much as possible and, and sort of make sure that the local community knows what's happening around them. And it, it took a lot of work and it is one of the sort of roles of a tree officer that is, is more the sort of the customer focus, the, the sort of community focus, because this is their home, this is their environment that they live in. And you are having to make some really big decisions on their behalf to keep them safe but at the same time trying to balance what they're losing in terms of their amenity and their space currently and how it won't look the same perhaps for a long time coming. There's one particular area where we've had to fell a lot of ash that were massive along a, a sort of public footpath. And, and putting the replacements in which we put in, one, one sort of customer sort of went past and said, well, I won't see it. the trees mature in my lifetime. And you think, no, but you have to think beyond that. What's your dream scenario? My dream scenario is, is where we live in a world where, where trees are valued more assets and, and moving past the I love trees, but nearly every tree officer has that T-shirt a million times and, and looking towards the sort of future of, of trees being seen as, as that positive and, and valuable asset that people want to have and then people want to also have and enjoy and not worry that it overhangs the garden a little bit, but be worried and in fear for their lives because 
in all my time, trees, as, as much as possible, try and survive. And, and actually, if we can help them thrive, not just try and survive, that would be my, my sort of future dream scenario where there's an integrated approach to tree management. And we all have that shared vision of developing that beautiful green future that we all want, but with trees as part of it. And, and trees really at the forefront of, of being integrated in design and thought out. I think that that for me has been one of the things with the development sides that I've worked on, that we've always tried to work so hard to integrate the tree element within it, but we've still got a lot more work to do with that coordination and collaboration um, between all the different industries and stakeholders. And it's, it's a positive way we're going, there's still a lot of work to do, but I'm really hopeful. I agree. That was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Amelia. What a joy it is to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sharon. It's been a pleasure. Okay, you may remember at the start of this episode, I said listen out for when Sharon incorporates Amelia's name into something that she says. There's 20 million points for anybody who got it. Have you tried things like biochar or any other um, soil ameliorant? So well done to all you eagle-eared listeners out there who got that one. There'll be another one in one of the next episodes this series. I feel another fanfare coming on. How much does it cost to put a tree in the ground? And why do people walk away? It's great news. Pete Wharton of Wharton Natural Infrastructure, otherwise known as Pete Waterman to me, is venturing into the world of podcasting. I'm so pleased. Pete's a friend of ours and his podcast is out now. Nature's Architects. The first one is the president of the Landscape Institute. And his next episode is with Luke Hilson, who is the design director of Barton Wilmore. But what I really love about this podcast series is we know that Pete's going to be talking to people who are at the forefront of working with the natural and built environments. He's speaking to architects, master planners, planning consultants, landscape architects, developers and land managers. Fantastic. It is Pete Waterman, isn't it? No, it's Pete Walter. Well, do you know what? I think that's the first interview where the interviewee has actually run it and you've just been sitting there saying, wow. I know. She's such a fantastic communicator. She's absolutely marvellous. I love working with Amelia on the Institute of Charter Foresters various groups as well. Everybody so. loves Amelia. I've seen Amelia on Zoom meetings and, and she just sits there and sits there and sits there and suddenly bang comes straight in with a fantastic point of view. It's just marvellous. Okay, so we go from Amelia in the UK to Kent Honnell. In the USA. And tell us about the musical connection, Noel. There is a musical connection, yes. Tenuous link here, musical connection. When we met Kent, he said, I've written some lyrics. And I said, what about? And he said, Armillaria. There's nothing scarier. 
unbelievable. I said to him, of course, in my in my marvellous jokey manner, I said, don't worry, I'll put that to music fairly soon and I'll send it over to you. I'm going to get to it now, so uh, Sharon, tell us about Kent. Kent is a great guy. We met him in Hong Kong a few years ago, didn't we? We did. He's an arboricultural consultant for Rainbow Tree Care and also a lecturer. He's a trainer for arborists. He speaks at conferences on plant health care, tree biology and diagnostic processes. He looks at various scientific protocols and treatments and he serves as a technical consultant. And he sent me a photograph the other day of one of his students, Bethany Koziki, who's done the CODIT model of trees, i.e. how do trees heal themselves and compartmentalise wounds, out of a loaf of bread. Whole grain? Oh, it is whole grain bread. Um, this bread, it's stuffed with celery, Edam cheese, and you know what? There's a perfectly good reason. Let's find out what that is. And uh, by the way, I'm on a diet, so I can't, be, I can't be eating any cheese. Well, in fact, the whole house is on a diet. Compo's on a diet. Compo, for those of us who've just joined this podcast, is our absolutely beautiful golden retriever. And we'll put a photograph of Compo on our social media so you know how gorgeous he is. Compo's got his own Instagram page, Compo the Golden. Uh, so if you want to see what Compo's actually all about, you can see it from there. And as usual, you can find us on Facebook, forward slash Sharon Hosgood Associates. Twitter. At the Tree Lady 67. Instagram. Tree Lady Talks. And we'll see you next time. It's just left for me to say goodbye. And you're saying goodbye as well. You're singing goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Triangle?